Well, good morning. Good morning. Over the course of uh, five weeks, um, on the back of Envision afternoon slash evening, depending on your perspective, uh, we're examining our church's mission statement, which is categorized under five headings. Five headings of keeping the main things the main things. One, knowing the gospel deeply. Two, applying the gospel broadly, which we'll be doing today. Proclaiming the gospel boldly. Building the church selflessly and living in community as family. These are the kind of the five essential points of mission that we want to be focusing in on so that we can be going out and being faithful servants of Christ Jesus as our Lord. So our mission statement orients us in a way towards living in a way that is faithful to Christ. And it's only through the generous saving grace of Jesus Christ that any of this is even possible. For the praise and honor of the Father, Jesus Christ has saved us, redeemed us, and called us to be a body of believers who can then march out to his calling into the world together. So this series acts as kind of a compass for the following year so that we can keep the main thing the main thing. So last week, Riley spoke about knowing the gospel deeply. Thank you. Covering this point through three lenses, he looked at knowing the gospel, knowing Jesus, and knowing the gospel passionately. Now, today, Riley has asked me to um, explore the the main mission point of applying the gospel broadly. So why did I restate Riley's sermon if we're looking at applying the gospel broadly today. Now, I don't want to retread his sermon. I don't want to. If you want to listen to it again, you can. It's on the the website. But the point of why I highlight his sermon and the points that he raised of knowing the gospel, knowing Jesus, and knowing the gospel passionately is because this needs to be the foundation. It needs to be the trunk, the base upon all which the other mission statements sprout from. Otherwise, we're going to end up with bad fruit as we move forward. The gospel has to be the foundation from which we build our building of mission statements. And applying the gospel is likewise under the umbrella of knowing the gospel deeply. We never must move beyond the first, knowing the gospel deeply. That must always remain the focal point. Otherwise in particular for today, we'd be ended up in the danger of distorting today's message. Because we can make the fatal error as we go about thinking about applying the gospel that the manifestations of Christian works is somehow the same as this equates the same as saving grace of Christianity. We can make that dangerous mistake and end up with poisonous fruit. Knowing the gospel deeply must be the prerequisite. It's rooted in the gospel that we have the application of it flowing out. And that's where the joy is. So now that we have knowing the gospel deeply as a foundation, let's look at approaching, um, applying the gospel broadly. And we're going to do this through three lenses, three lenses or three points. One, be doers of the word. Be doers of the word which will be looking at the importance of living out our faith in a way um, that James talks about in James chapter 1. 
Our second lens will be applying the gospel personally. What does it look like to apply the gospel personally? And our third lens will be applying the gospel as a community. As a group of individuals called into a body of believers in this local church in Parramatta, what does it look like to apply this, boss, this gospel as a body? But before we continue, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gracious gift of you. If we were left to ourselves, we would be, we'd be sorely lost. But you called us, you, you purchased us by the very precious blood of Jesus Christ. And it is golden. It is golden goodness. And it's only by this gold of faith in Christ that we are able to hear your words today and have them impact our heart. May we listen carefully to you, Spirit, in your name. Amen. So we're going to look at our first lens, first point today, be doers of the word. And we're going to do this by looking at a passage found in James chapter 1, starting at verse 19. If you wish to have a physical Bible, we have some at the back. Um, you can go grab one of those. Otherwise, we'll be up on the screen as well. James chapter 1, starting at verse 19. We'll be reading to verse 25. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So we're going to be looking at primarily from this passage from James. I read the whole to kind of give us context. We're going to be focusing in on verse 22. Verse 22, which says, be, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So in James' time context, we need to be first of all understanding, so we get this, this um, verse 22 in our context. In James' context, illiteracy was very, very high. You are privileged to be able to read. That's why James appeals to the sense of hearing, hearing. So for his readers, they would have listened to the, the testimony um, from James here, and they would have heard that they need to be, in our context, not just readers of the word, but doers of the word. Don't be just hearers, but doers of the word. And the imperative remains strong because the connected warning is, is pretty serious. Otherwise, you may be at risk of deceiving yourself, deception of oneself. Because the nature of the human heart is such that we're so capable of deceiving ourselves unless we have the mirror of God's word penetrating deep into our heart and like a laser cutting off the sinful nature and revealing the God's truth to our heart and living out in that way that we can deceive ourselves if we're not doing that. We can deceive ourselves. Now, this passage is important because it says it's not enough to 
believe the words, to read the words, and to believe them on a super, superficial level. And James actually talks about in chapter 2, he says, you know, even the, the devil knows the words, but he, he goes on to say, but he doesn't believe them. So there's an element of belief that needs to be understood as we go about looking at James chapter 1, verse 22, and how it applies to us. Because Jesus makes it abundantly clear in Matthew 7, 21 to 23, some of the most scary words, I think, in the New Testament. They're not about hell. They're not about God's wrath. They're about someone who professes the name of the Lord Jesus. And Jesus says that you are not welcome in the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. That is serious. He says, those that not everyone who professes the name of Jesus is a true follower of Jesus. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is saved because they need to follow the will of the Father. They need to follow the will of the Father. So what is this will of the Father? So John chapter 6, 40 says this. So we need to understand. Jesus says um, in, in Matthew 7, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will be saved unless you are following the will of the Father. So what is this will of the Father? We need to understand this. John 6, 40. For this is the will of the, my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. And according to Jesus, we need to see what does belief look like in the Son. So we've got, you need to be following the will of the Father. What is the will of the Father? That you follow the Son. And then the Son tells us in the book of Mark what it means to actually follow Him. So we're getting this sequence of ideas to paint the picture of what actual doers of the word means on a deeper level. So in Mark 8, 34b, talking to the disciples in the crowd, he says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. So in other words, Jesus is saying, if you want saving faith in me, you need to be prepared to die to yourself and follow me. Die to yourself and follow me. So with this in mind, I want us to draw us back to James. And I want us to focus in on what now, if the will of the Father is to follow Jesus, and Jesus says, to follow me means to die to yourself. Let's unpack this um, James chapter 1 and see how it can apply to us. Well, actually, we need a bit of James 2 to give us some context. So in James 2, he says, you know, faith is, is if you profess faith, it's not actually proven to be true unless there is application. It's the application of the word in our lives. Application of the word in our lives. So what is this word? It's not it's not something that we can just assume we know what it is. Now, the word is Scripture. We read that elsewhere. In Timothy, for example, the word is Scripture, but it's not simply limited to. The word, as we understand it, is the Old Testament interpreted through the lens and perspective of Jesus, completed in his teaching in the New Testament. But ultimately, the word is Jesus himself. 
Now, why do I say this? Why is this important? Well, because in John, John chapter 5, 39, I see another stark warning. And it's this, Jesus talking to the religious leaders, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is that they bear witness about me. You can be someone who reads the word of God diligently every day, doing your faithful reading, which is good and good for discipline and spiritual growth. But it's not enough if you stop at the words and you don't go to the deeper application of the words, what it was intended for, for Jesus Christ. So as we see, when James is saying, be doers of the word, ultimately we're being doers of the word for the lens of focusing on Christ and who he is as a person and reading scripture through that lens for that angle so that we can be doing the Father's will. So we can be doing the Father's will. Being doers of the word. Being doers of the word. Let's be doers of the word in all its glory. Let's, every passage, as Brian Chappell says, he argues every passage in the Bible is redemptive because it predicts, prepares for, reflects, or results from Christ. If Christ says all scripture points to him, then we have to be searching for Christ in all scripture. Now, how we do that is a challenge sometimes, especially when you're reading the genealogies or you're reading Leviticus. And you can think of many other verses. But Christ is there, whether it be in the genealogies that we see that God had a preordained plan through all of these people lined up through history to bring about his son in fulfillment of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that he would send a redeemer. That's how you see Christ. That is what we need to be in order to be doers of the word. Because we do not want to be a hearer of the word and not a doer. We want to be someone who looks into the mirror. And our lives are characterized by joyful obedience to what we see of Christ in the scripture and his command upon our lives in the process of dying to ourself, as he says in Mark chapter 8. Looking into the word, doers of the word means looking for Christ, dying to oneself, and humbly submitting to the Father's will with the Spirit's prompting. Because let's face it, there are some challenging, demanding scriptural verses about how we ought to shape our life. Challenging ones. Whether it be in marriage, submitting. Whether it be dying, or whether it be in singleness, refraining from sexual relations, or whether it be encouraging our children to grow in godliness by disciplining them, which might seem counter to this world's value of let them be them. There are challenging words, but it's not a choose-your-own-adventure book. We don't open the scriptures and go, well, I choose that one because that really works, and I want to be headed to that point at the end of this journey. No, we have to do all that the word contains therein because all of it points to Christ. All of it points to Christ and all of it is in obedience to the Father's will. So being doers of the word, if we were to summarize this, take this, all of this, 
doers of the word means to be pursuing Christ through the scriptures, having his will upon our life imprinted deeply on our heart, opening the word and then being obedient to its call upon our life, no matter how difficult and challenging that might be. But there's also a great blessing in this chapter, uh, in this um, passage that we're looking at. Verse 25, if you notice there, it's not up on the screen. He says that there is a blessing in following the word. There's a blessing. He will be blessed in his doing. There's warnings. I've mentioned some warnings. And warnings are there to, to alert us. Danger, look out. Don't go over the edge of the cliff. The road ends. But there's blessings here as well. And I want to just focus in on this, that there is in obedience to the word, in faithful obedience to the word, we will bear much fruit. And this is what we read in John chapter 15, verse 5. He says, Jesus speaking to his disciples says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing but we will bear much fruit if we abide in Christ. Spiritual fruit. So there is a great joy to be had in as well in pursuing being doers of the word, not just hearers. Okay, so we've covered now being doers of the word. Let's move on to the next lens that we want to be thinking about as a church of how we apply the word, and that is applying the gospel personally. And I want to just kind of take us on this journey, reminding us of what God has called us out of and into, so that we can have this as our focus this year as we hopefully grow and mature in Christ. And I'm going to be throwing up some technical theological terms, but they're helpful to bear in mind, as it gives us a frame from which to kind of anchor ourselves as we go about this process of growth. So the first one is sanctification. Sanctification, the process or the position of being made holy. Applying the gospel personally means to be sanctified. And there's two that I've mentioned here. And it's important that we distinguish the two so that we know how we go about and we move forward in a way that's honoring to God. So the first one is positional sanctification. When you were redeemed and purchased through the blood of Christ, you were positionally sanctified. That means set apart, set as holy for God. And this was done before you were even born, before the foundation of the world. God chose you to be holy, to be set apart for him. Positional. This is unchanging, attached to justification, that you are declared right. Not anything that you have to do you are just positioned. You're part of the community of God's holy people. That's positional sanctification. The next, and that's a past tense activity. Let's bear that in mind. Past tense activity initiated at conversion. Then there's the other one, progressive sanctification. And this is an ongoing present process of becoming more and more like Christ, which is never complete in this life. You never reach perfection. Never reach perfection. And it's actioned in conjunction with the Spirit. The Spirit prompts and enables us to action growth in holiness in our lives. 
Now, I think a good illustration of this is um, as you're driving down uh, one of the main streets to come to church here, uh, there's this dilapidated home, and someone's purchased it. It's, no one's going to want to live there. It's terrible. Um, and that's kind of renovation and purchase of the home is what I'm going to use for sanctification. So someone has purchased that home. That is positional sanctification. It's theirs. They own the home, no matter the dilapidated state that you find it in initially. Just like when we were purchased by the blood of Christ, some of us were in a terrible, terrible state. Our lives were ruined, destructive. And some of us, our lives, from a human perspective, were not as destructive or broken down as different homes can be in varying degrees of disrepair. But we all needed God. We were all dilapidated, broken homes, not fit for use. The positional sanctification is the purchase. The progressive sanctification is that the owner takes that home and they renovate it. Bit by bit, they're changing it and they're working on it and making it more fit for use. And that is like God. When he buys us, when he purchases us, he redeems us, atones us. He takes us and bit by bit, he progressively sanctifies us, changes us to make him more like his son, Christ. Now, the analogy does kind of fall down a little bit because you can get to a point when the home almost seems practically completely renovated. But if you actually think about it, homes are never fully renovated. There's always something more you can do. And that's, um, that's uh, like glorification. It's only when we meet Christ or Christ comes that we are made perfect in him. All right? But we are going to focus in on, as individuals, we are to apply the gospel personally. Because there are some passages. In Peter, for example, it says... He who called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. You be holy in all your conduct. Or Romans 8, 29 says, For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Or 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. God has called us to grow and participate in sanctific- progressive sanctification. Now for... Um, just ease of, ease of going through. When I'm referring to sanctification from now on, I'm referring to progressive sanctification, okay? Progressive sanctification. So to explore this concept of progressive sanctification, sanctification, we're going to zoom in and examine a passage in Colossians. So look with me at Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 1, and we're going to be reading to verse 10. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ is your life appears, then you also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. 
You notice the juxtaposition, the contrast between two different things. One of the old, one of the new. Putting to death, living in life in this passage. Because we've been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ and through faith, we now live differently as individuals in Christ. A way that's countercultural, that seems odd and strange and peculiar once they scratch below the surface of a nice person. When the world asks deeper questions, it will seem to them foreign, otherworldly. That is because we are exiles. Because prior to Christ, we all lived lives characterized by forms of impurity, idolatry, evil, wickedness. You can read the list there. I'm not going to read it out again, but you can read the list. That's what we were. And the thing is, although we have been called into a new life, the old self is drawn to and desires living in ways that are oppositional to God's holiness. Our earthly ways fight and rage against us. Now, some of us gents had the privilege of reading a book um, about indwelling sin over the Christmas break. And an important point in that book was you cannot let your guard down with sin, indwelling sin. It will eat you, consume you. We are to be at war with indwelling sin. Now, the way of death and self-destruction, it has been put to death. We are no longer slaves to Christ. Uh, Sorry, no longer slaves to death. We are slaves to Christ. Make sure that that is true. We are slaves to Christ. Um, But death still rages. It calls out to us. Our old nature tempts us, lures us. But we have the power through Christ to resist now. Because it's contrary. The sinful nature is contrary to your new identity in Christ. Because putting to death, as we read in, read in that passage, put to death, put to death, repeated so many times, put away, put away, is the call to the Christian fight to remember that you are a new creature in Christ. Your identity has changed fundamentally. Everyone who is out of Christ is humanity, one. Everyone who's in Christ is humanity, two. We have a new identity. We are exiles here. And we are being changed from glory to glory. We're new in Christ. So that means each day, each moment, we're to remember that we're putting to death our old nature. And Romans chapter 6, 12 talks about this and it says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you. We are to resist the power of sin in our life. A daily call, a daily challenge in the strength of the Spirit, knowing that it will not have dominion over us because we're under grace We're under grace. We're not a slave to sin. We're not a slave to sin. Here's the warning though. We can still allow sin to have periods of reigning over us. Reigning over us. But we are no longer called to be bound to the will of our sinful nature, compelled to do its bidding. 
And instead, we have a new master Christ. And therefore, we put to death. We say, no, sin will not reign over me. It leads to death and destruction. I've been saved from that. That is our calling. Therefore, as individuals, we need to put to death, put to death daily through the application of the word, looking for Christ, being obedient to his faithful commands through the Spirit's promptings, so that we can be conformed to the image of his Son. And that is a daily challenge. And glorious is the fight. Glorious is the fight, because it's already ultimately been won. Which leads us to our final lens today, and looking at applying the gospel as a community. So we've covered be doers of the word, applying the gospel deeply as individuals, and applying the gospel deeply as a community. When we were called to Christ, when we were given a new identity, we were given a new identity collectively with others as well. It's not, it's not an individual saving in the sense that we are not just saved by ourselves. It's just you and God, that's it. Heaven would be a very lonely place. Well, I guess not really because you'd be with God. But we're called into a family, new humanity, as mentioned, humanity too. And we're not independent of each other. And yet I have had conversations with, with some people, some, some friends actually, um, where they say, you know, I'm just not into the whole institutional side of things. I'm just not into this church business. I, I do Jesus and me, and that's great. I don't need Jesus and three in the sense of needing others. I just don't do that. And often there's deep hurt and pain that's associated with that. And I think there are faithful believers who meet in, in home churches and community settings where there are underground churches in, in um, various places around the world, say China or Iran. Um, and there also, there's blessings of, of more um, institutionalized ways, such as SG Parramatta, of, of people gathering. But the thing is, the Bible repeatedly teaches a communal dimension to our faith in Christ. And if we are to apply the gospel deeply, we cannot just do it individually. We must do it as a community. Because as a community, the gospel determines our identity, hope, and growth in maturity and sanctification. That's why John Piper helpfully says, and um, we'll have a look at some of these aspects of what it means to be in community, but he says sanctification is a community project. It's a community project. And um, I'm going to be reading another, an extended quote, Paul Tripp. He says, it was actually what we read this week for um, Life Group. It was actually very pertinent to what we're looking at today. Um, he says this, I need help remembering who I am. If I receive that help, I can live with a more cogent awareness of sin and grace with radically different results than if I seek to live this inherently communitarian life on my own. I will only know myself accurately when I know myself in the biblical community. My walk with God really is a community project. And he goes on to say, There is only one way you and I will ever hold on to the two identities, child of grace, yet sinner. That propel a godly life in this fallen and idolatrous world. It can only happen when we, live, we are living in a functional Biblical community with people who will again and again remind us of who we are. 
I need people in my life who will lovingly hold the mirror of the word in front of me so that I can see how deeply my struggle with sin is. The problem with sin is it can be very self-deceiving. We need others to shine the mirror of Christ's goodness so we can have our sins identified and its cancerous effect ripped out. And the New Testament makes this abundantly clear as well. I'm only going to share a few references because there are so many references to a key phrase, one another, found in the New Testament. Do such and such with one another, one another, one another. So many. And I don't want to sit here and just give you a list of it. Um, but go explore the scriptures. Type in one another into your concordance on the, on the computer and you will see so many. I want to just give you a taste Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgive one another as Christ, uh, sorry, forgive one another as God is Christ forgave you. Now, this is just a little sampling. There are so many one another's. Now, it might seem obvious, but you can't do one another if it's just you. You can't. It's not possible. In one another, we sharpen each other. We sharpen. We grow. We press into those points of pain through perceptive questions, often prompted by the Spirit. We examine each other, not for the purpose of condemnation, for the purpose of raising one another up for greater glory in Christ. One another. Christianity isn't Jesus and me. It is Christianity. And more. More than three. You know, it's, it's community coming together. And uh, this week, and looking at the reading that we were looking at, you know, the broken down house... Um, I think his lens, I'm going to borrow his lens for how this actually looks like for us as a community to be applying the gospel deeply as a community. And he talks about three, well, he talks about four, but I want to focus on three lenses that I want us to press into. Being intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, and a grace-driven community. Intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, and grace-driven community. I think these are a helpful way for us to practically apply the word to one another deeply in community. So intentionally intrusive means allowing others to come into the private spaces of my life in order to help me see myself with biblical accuracy. So are we, are we pressing into, and this isn't just um, limited to the, the Sunday service, it's, it's a whole of life application. But are we seeking the benefit of the lives exposed to the gospel, to the grace, the reflection of others? Or are we sheltering under false protection of privacy, risking exposure to the damaging effects of sin and self-deception? Christ-centered. Christ-centered means that the hope and goal of these relationships is Christ. When we're at life group or community group, are we coming with expectation to see Christ move amongst our midst? To see the Spirit pour out? And this is a warning, this is a, an encouragement to me as well to expect the Spirit to do incredible things 
in our growth groups and life groups. When we interact with each other, are we being the sweet aroma of Christ or vinegar to the teeth? Or what's worse, being apathetic and bland? Now, this openness, this opportunity, when prompted by the Spirit, can become an opportunity to beckon back to grace, to beckon us back to Christ, Christ-centered. Are we being that as a community? And grace-driven, the third part of this, are we ministering to one another in a way that only grace can deliver us from sin? Are we ministering to one another in a way that only grace can deliver us from sin? How are we showing gentleness of spirit to one another? When a brother or sister reveals weakness, with struggle with their flesh, besetting sin, is our default grace and encouragement, redirecting their attention to Christ and what he's done for them, the power of the cross. Because it's only by grace we've been saved too. Only by grace. Or are we tempted to fall into judgment? Well, I wouldn't do that. I'm actually questioning whether they're a Christian and slacking in compassion and speech. Now, one practical way that our church exercises intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered and grace-driven community is through life groups and growth groups. Can I encourage you guys to press into them? Make them the rhythm of life. A non-negotiable part because growth in Christ is a blessing and you need your community to show you the mirror of Christ. So press into, as you start this new year, into your life group and community group. It's, it is tempting to say that it's a negotiable part. Or, you know, sometimes it, it does feel like an inconvenience. Um, but it's also a profound opportunity to practice applying the gospel as a community. Now, this is not in any sense meant to be guilt-inducing of the times when you know, maybe you, you can't get to community or growth group. That's fine. Guilt never has the power to remove sin. But it's an opportunity to see the blessing that there can be, to come to brothers and sisters, at least one punctuated point throughout the week, apart from the Sunday service, to be encouraged and built up in Christ. But don't limit it this to this. Seek opportunities to connect with one another throughout the week. Applying the gospel as community can be as simple as delivering a meal to someone. It could be offering a word of encouragement. It could be just a call, say, hey, I'm just checking in on you. You shared this on Sunday and I, I just had you on my heart. I've been praying for you, praying for one another. The joy is there. So with all of this in mind, thinking about being doers of the word, applying the gospel deeply as individuals and applying the gospel deeply as community, Let's bring it back to Christ. Because it's only possible that we can be doers of the word. It's only possible that we can be applying the gospel deeply. It's only possible that we can be applying the gospel deeply as individuals and as a community if we are in Christ. Let's take a moment. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood of Christ that he applied that blood to you, to us, if we're in Christ. And it's yours as well if you are not in Christ. It's the blood applied that allows us to apply the blood through individual sanctification and 
as a community. It is the blood of Christ. Praise be to Jesus that on that cross, despite being forsaken, despite having the sin fully laid on him as an individual, bearing the brunt of it, he stayed up there. Despite the fact that his father, his father, he he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he stays up there, so he will not forsake you in your moments when you're struggling to apply the gospel deeply. He stays up on that cross because he, in that cross, is making a family of believers. Humanity too. He is making a family who can spur one another on to do the Father's will, which is to be following and believing in Jesus Christ. It's in him that we can take up our cross and we can follow Christ, dying to ourselves daily. Praise be to Jesus and the blood applied.